Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. After a few glasses of wine, um, but I'd like to also at the start thank uh, Fiona Pauley uh, for all the help she's given me in sorting out the event and getting the speakers and the supporters. So first of all, housekeeping rules: please uh, turn your phones to silent, um, but remember that you can tweet. Um, so please feel free to do that. And we have uh, some hashtags: uh, NWED, so National Women Engineering Day, which has been trending. I'm pleased to say. Women in Engineering, Women in Motorsport, um, and at, at iMacKey and at Wes. Um, if there is any fire alarm, we're not expecting anything, please follow the green exit signs and uh, follow me. I will be leading the march or making sure you're all out um, of the building. But we exit by the door you came in of the, at the front of the building, turn left, and we accumulate by the uh, steps further down the road. Um, I would like to thank our sponsors and supporters for the event, so the um, Institute of Engineering and Technology, the IET, um, the Motorsport Industries Association, FIA Women in Motorsport Commission and Women Engineering Society and of course WISE Women in Science and Engineering. I would like to thank our exhibitor, Robert Bosch UK. I hope you had the opportunity to speak to them downstairs and see their video and I'd also like to uh, thank the webinar sponsor, Saved Publications. And I'm actually delighted to say that we have a uh, world record attempt uh, for the amount of people subscribed for our webinar today. Uh, so that's a, a great news. And another thing is that we've been contacted by a number of schools asking us to, um, they would wish that we would hold this sort of event at a weekend. And they're very much looking forward to receiving the uh, podcast and the updates from the uh, event itself. So uh, next I would like to uh, introduce our uh, compare for the evening. 
uh, many of you will recognise her, uh, Jenny Gow. She is the BBC Radio 5 Live uh, presenter. Not only she has more than 15 years experience, but she is one of Britain's leading motorsport uh, commentators. Uh, she is the lead anchor for the ITV coverage for FI Formula E Championship, which will be all over our TV screens this weekend. <laughs> Um, and also she's a, a regular reporter in the pit lane for the BBC Five Lives Formula One coverage. Anyway, enough from me. I will hand over to her and I'll be delighted to, to welcome all our engineers and budding engineers to this inspiring female event. Thank you. Um, what an introduction, thank you. <laughs> um, and thank you all for being here. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be hosting tonight. Um, I talk a lot about what happens in pit lanes, but I don't know that much, if that makes any sense to you, because I'm not an engineer, I'm not qualified as an engineer. So for me to be able to host this tonight and actually introduce you to some people who really know what they're talking about when it comes to uh, motorsport is a real honor and a privilege. Uh, so thank you very much. I hope you are, are excited. I hope you're going to tweet lots, interact lots, and you've got lots of questions uh, towards the end of this event that you're going to uh, ask our panellists. So we'll split it into two different panel sessions. We have uh, our engineers coming up in a few minutes' time. But first of all, uh, if I can welcome uh, our presenters to the panel, that would be fantastic. Uh, so please welcome Rachel Matthews, Helen Jarman, uh, Aurelia Hibbert, and Hannah Sugru to the stage. So we're going to start uh, with two presenters um, who will tell you a lot about some fascinating things. First of all, Rachel Matthews, uh, who's a scrutineering engineer for Colossus F1, who's the world champion in the F1 in schools. And then following her will be Helen Jarman, uh, who's the team manager for Evolution F1 in schools, uh, Team UK champions. So let's start with Rachel. So, good evening ladies and gentlemen. I'm honoured to be here today. Um, it doesn't feel as if I should be here, but it's amazing it hasn't really sunk in. I am here. So, for the past three years I've been taking part in a competition called F1 in Schools and it's the world's largest science, technology and mathematics competition. Every year, four million students from 40 countries worldwide take part in this competition and they take part in regional and national competitions all aiming to get to the world finals where they aim to get the Bernie Eccleston World Champion Trophy and get a scholarship to London City University. Um, it's a multidisciplinary competition where teams design, test and manufacture miniature F1 cars about this big and that it must control, comply with a 30-page rule booklet. Not only this, but a pit display must be created, presentations must be formed and overall a 30-page, no, 20-page portfolio must be made that showcases the team's work. So, as you know, I am part of Colossus F1, the world champion team. I am the scrutineering engineer, so my job was to make sure that the, <laughs> make sure that the car complied with every single one of the rules and be able to argue coherently if a judge picked up on one of the rules and decided that it was illegal. Um, this was one of the most important factors that helped us to win because we did have an 100% legal car at the world final competition. However, <laughs> Colossus F1 had no easy ride to Abu Dhabi. As I was saying, 
I did feel that scrutineering is one of the most important parts and I'm really sad to say that at the regional and national competitions we did break a critical rule and if you break a critical rule it means you can't win one of the three, any of the three main awards you can get which is winning it overall, best engineered car or fastest car, you can't win any of those. And so we came second at both the regionals and nationals competition and luckily enough F1 in schools still let us go through, still let us compete at the world finals which we are grateful for. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to compete in F1 in schools is because it's so diverse, it tests so many aspects and skills that you can have and it's just really fun and it just helps open the gateway into F1 and it's just so similar to the aspects that real F1 is formulated on. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for our predecessors and all the teams that came before us from Robert Mays. So with that, I'd like to pass on to Helen Jarman, who is the future of F1 in schools with Robert Mays. Um, so as Rachel said, um, I'm the team manager of the new team, Evolution F1. We came together over a year ago and are a mix of ages 15 and 16 years of age, with a balance of skill, knowledge and ability, meaning we seek different roles. My job is to ensure everyone is doing their jobs as effectively as possible. I'm the team manager. We then have Chris, who is doing CAD work that an 18, 19 year old should be doing. We have Rob, who is creating and designing our greatest innovation, the Launch Energy Recovery System. We have Katie, who is doing all things to do with marketing. Ollie is putting all these ideas through to CFD and wind tunnel testing. And this is all controlled by our own scrutineer, also by the name of Rachel. In exactly 77 days, we, Evolution F1, will be going to Singapore to compete in the F1 in Schools 11th World Championships, representing Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Our aim is simple, to retain the world title and bring the Bernie Eccleston Trophy back to this country. However, ladies and gents, to get to Singapore alone costs £5,500. And if we are going to have any chance at getting our aim, we need to be competitive and so we raised £24,000. We have the manufacturing facilities. We have the marketing advice. All we need now is financial support. If you're here tonight, just talk to us in these jumpers. They're quite noticeable. And if you're watching on the webinar, look at our Facebook and Twitter page by simply searching Evolution F1. There you can find out more about what we do, contact details, and you can also go on our GoFundMe website where you can safely and securely donate money to this cause. And if you know a company that might like to see their name, brand, on our clothing, car and portfolio on a worldwide marketing platform, just let us know. Truthfully, I had never considered engineering before F1 in schools. But now I'm hoping to pursue a career in it. And if we cannot raise this money to go to the World Finals, then I'm missing out on an engineering opportunity of a lifetime. And I don't want this experience to end quite yet. Thank you for listening. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Rachel Matthews and Helen Jarman. Helen, I think that's possibly the best funding picture I've heard since I last spoke to Bernie Eccleston. I think if he's watching, he will be very impressed with you. So well done. Uh, let's move along our panel now uh, to Aurelia Hibbert, who's the Programme Director at Cambridge uh, University Eco Racing. I'm just going to get the presentation up. Okay, so it looks like it's taken a while, so I'll get started while it's loading. 
Um, I'm Aurelia, um, and I've just been elected in the last two weeks um, as the first ever full-time director of Cambridge University Eco Racing. We design and build solar-powered cars, which we compete with in the World Solar Challenge in Australia. The competition is every two years. Um, it is 3,000 kilometres from Darwin to Adelaide, um, and it takes about five days. Um, it's an endurance competition, um, which means that you have to have a car that works for five days. Um, our mission statement is to inspire and innovate, um, and we do this on three fronts. Um, by using cutting-edge technology, um, we innovate in sort of world of solar vehicles. Um, we aim to raise awareness in students. Um, we are entirely a student-based team, and we try to encourage younger students to get involved in engineering. And we feel that through this sort of exciting project that's a bit sort of out there, um, we get a lot of people that are interested in all sorts of different engineering. Um, it's a lot about sustainability. There's also the sort of racing side. Um, and it tends to draw quite a lot of attention um, from all around the engineering um, industry. The last thing is the opportunity for students to work with some of the sponsors and mentors that we have. It provides a really good sort of side project to the Cambridge Engineering course, which is a very theoretical course. Um, and it's, it's something that you just don't, provides something you just don't get on the course, that sort of real world experience. And it's not something that you get when you start out in industry. You don't get those mentors who are CEOs of large manufacturing companies knocking on your door or calling you up in the evening and just checking up how you are. So it's something that um, provides an amazing opportunity for the students. So my journey briefly, um, I got into engineering through studying design technology. Um, I always liked maths, but I sort of wanted to study classics. Um, and then I thought, well, I don't know where I would go after that. Um, so I thought, actually, I quite like design technology. Um, and so many people have done amazing things with the sort of engineering background. Um, so I thought, give it a go. It seemed like something I wanted to do in the future, and I could see it being a long-term thing for me. Um, so I, I now study engineering at Cambridge. I've done two years, and I'm now taking a year out to run the team. Um, I started on the team just under two years ago um, on the logistics team, because I wasn't that sure about my knowledge of cars because it was kind of non-existent um, but now here I am <laughs> overseeing the whole thing so it's been a really steep learning curve um, but I've loved every minute. So the challenge. Um, this year we've just been told that there are going to be 48 competitors which is the biggest number we've had so far. Um, usually the top 10 to 15 will actually complete the challenge and some of them will average a speed of 90 kilometers over the five days. This is including stoppage time. So we've got top speeds of some of these cars of 120 kilometers an hour. People don't tend to believe that you can do that with a solar car, but it's definitely possible. So this is sort of the, the history of the solar challenge and what most of the cars look like. Um, this is a team from TU Delft in the Netherlands. Um, and as you can see, they've won a lot of the races. Um, and they're great, and they're lovely people, but they always win. <laughs> and they've been going for about 25 years now. So our big challenge was, how do we, as a relatively young team, having started in 2007, compete with these people that have been going for so long? Um, so what we decided to do was change the way we do it. Um, 
we've been backed very generously by these four main companies um, who work with us on our manufacturing and um, provide us with workshop space and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's, it's a big project. Um, we raise between three and four hundred thousand pounds a year and a lot of that is thanks to these guys and absolutely not possible without excellent manufacturing partners. So what we came up with was a different way of doing it. We thought, you know what, these guys know how to make these cars, they know how to make them go fast and that's not something that you can just turn up and do your first year. So we thought, they're all about the solar. They're relying on solar panels to get better and motors to get more efficient. What if we find something that we can drive ourselves the improvement? Um, so what we looked at was the aerodynamics. And as you can see, the car is very streamlined and it's very small. And we use gallium arsenide solar cells, which are 36% efficient. And the usual solar ones and silicon ones that other teams use are about 20%. So we're only allowed half the area, but they are a lot more efficient. And by reducing the size of the car, and therefore reducing the drag, the energy balance works out, and we should be able to go as fast. And we've believed that we can improve the aerodynamics faster than other teams can get better solar cells because they're not driving out themselves, they're waiting on companies to produce it for them. So this is what the car looks like if you take it apart. Um, it's got a solar array at the back that actually tracks the sun. Um, this is one of our big selling points in the last race. Um, we have 20 kilos of lithium-ion batteries, which will allow us to drive about five minutes. Uh, five hours, sorry. <laughs> um, and the car uses about a kilowatt of energy, which is about the same amount of power as a hairdryer. So if you imagine your hairdryer being able to power a car to go about 70 kilometers an hour using the same amount of energy, I mean, it sort of blows your mind. Um, but I promise you it's true. We have a lot of small drivers, because unfortunately the size of the car dictates that we have to have people that are under about five foot six, five foot five, um, which means that we have to be very careful about who we put in the car. Um, we want them to have driving experience. It's not an easy vehicle to drive because of the dynamics of it. Um, it's quite tall and thin. Um, we did have an incident in the 2013 World Solar Challenge where the car was ultimately, when it got to the competition, unstable. Um, and we ended up not actually making it to the starting line. So what we've done off the back of that is produce a car that's much more reliable. We've put a big focus in on the testing of the vehicle. And this year we want to complete the challenge. It'll be the first time in the team's history that we've managed this. Um, and for us, that is sort of the foundation for going forwards and then being able to compete with the top teams. If we finish the race, then we will come in the top 10 or 15. So we're already looking at quite a competitive vehicle. So this is the vehicle that we use for the testing. Um, we call it EVA. Um, we've just taken it apart and now putting it back together with a whole load of modifications so that we can take it to the competition in October. Um, so everything's a bit crazy at the moment. There's a lot of build work going on in the workshop most of the day, uh, which is absolutely excellent. Um, it's great to see all these months of planning and designs and concepts um, actually come together to something and be able to sort of get your hands dirty in the workshop. It's much better. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what we do as a team. And please
please keep in touch with us and engage. So thank you very much to Aurelia Hibbert. Uh, now we move on to the formerly student uh, with Hannah Sugru from the University of Warwick, uh, mechanical engineering student, although graduates next week. That'll be a party. Uh, 50,000th uh, formula student competitor as well. Yes, so hi everyone. Uh, my name's Hannah Sugru. I am a University of Warwick mechanical engineering student, not for much longer. Um, it's been a long five years. I started at Warwick in... 2010, um, started to get involved in Formula Student in 2011 and it has completely changed what I thought I wanted to do as a career. Um, I ended up coming into engineering with the usual, good at maths, good at science, what do you do with it? I don't just want to be stuck solving proofs in a classroom all day, so what better way than to apply it to building a race car? Um, Formula Student is basically what, like, affirmed that, that I wanted to do mechanical engineering specifically, basically because when I was looking at engineering degrees at all different universities and you go on open days and stuff, Formula Student is a big thing they, they pull out. It's an IMACI organised event um, where you design, build and test a race car to then race against up to 100 other teams at the Formula Student competition held at Silverstone in July. So. Our team is currently preparing for the next competition, which is, starts two weeks today. Um, so that's quite exciting. Um, very, very busy back at the workshop at Warwick. Um, so, yeah, it's a really, really brilliant thing to get involved in. I've been involved, as I say, for the last four years. I started in the Class 2 team, which is, you don't build an actual car, you just design it, um, Proof it is kind of like a trial run for class one. So I got involved in that to start with on the business side. Did the business pitch, the cost and sustainability presentation. It really kind of brought me into looking at the design aspect, which then led me on to project managing the team, um, similar to what Aurelia does um, at Cambridge, but for Warwick Racing instead. So that has a whole load of different nightmares involved, especially when... I was given this position and then told I need to organise the team to go to a global competition in Australia. Um, I had a month to organise that, like ship a race car, it'd be easy, it's really not, there's a lot of batteries um, and they don't really comply with international like airline regulations and stuff so that was difficult but it was really really rewarding. I mean the opportunities I've had have been brilliant. We this, isn't, this is last year's car, as you can see on the screen, um, which we competed at Silverstone last year. Um, the competition is made up of seven different events, three static and four dynamic. So static business presentation, as I've mentioned, cost event, and also design event. So those things don't involve the car actually running. They involve you performing basically a Dragon's Den pitch in the business, a full cost breakdown of every single component on that car, every nut, bolt, washer. It's very, very tedious, but it really prepares you for real-world engineering, and you've really got to take everything down to the tiniest component and see where you can save cost, but it also helps you looking at where you can save weight and thus improve your performance. And then the design event where a whole host of judges invited by the IMACI then come and judge your designs based on basic engineering principles. 
Once that's over, you get to go through scrutineering where they safety check your car, make sure it's legal, you've got chassis inspection, safety inspection, and then you've got all of the different brake test, tilt test, and noise test to make sure you comply with all of those regulations. Sounds quite simple, it's really not. A lot of teams don't actually get fully scrutineered and they aren't able to race, which is the whole reason you're there. You have two days to get through scrutineering alongside doing all of these static events. And so it's a very high pressure environment. You've got to be very organized, got to have a lot of experience and know what's coming and be able to prepare for every eventuality. Even the top teams have something break at competition, um, which is why it's really handy when TU Delft, who also competing formula student as well as eco um, racing they have their own little mobile workshop that they bring from the netherlands with a lathe and all kinds of people in case you have things go wrong so they're always really handy to have <laughs> uh, so yeah that once you pass all of the scrutineering you go on to the dynamic events which starts with acceleration and skid pan in the morning acceleration not to 100 meters how fast can you go which is all down to driver training and how quick they can change gear in a petrol car which is what we use electric cars usually completely destroy us in that because they just they just press a button and go and they're <laughs> straight down there um, you'll see some like um, amz who are the zurich team they've actually beat the world record for naught to 100 meters um, in something ridiculous like two ish seconds which is very impressive if you want to Look at that. Um, and then you've got skid pan, which is a figure of eight. So you do two circles one way, two circles the other, and then out. Um, sounds quite simple. One of our drivers last year actually did three circles on one side. So that was disqualified. Um, but fortunately, you get four runs. So that wasn't too bad. Moving on then into the afternoon, you have your sprint, which is one lap of a track as fast as you can. Um, and then that then determines your place in the endurance event, which is the biggest event. Aurelia's mentioned that her team does a 3,000 kilometer endurance event. Ours sounds a lot less um, exciting. It's 22 kilometers, but it's very, very, very difficult to have you know in these cars. Um, and most, most cars do not finish. Um, unfortunately, ours did not finish last year. We had a slight uh, vibration error, error in the electronics. The, one of the rules is you need to have a switch underneath the brake pedal in case your brake pedal fails and it over travels will kill the engine so the car can't run if you don't have any brakes it's not very safe for you to be out on the track unfortunately as we run a single cylinder engine there's quite a lot of vibrations in a very small space and a very small weight so the switch just turned itself off around lap five out of 20 and that was a very upsetting day for us but We've rectified it for this year, so we're really hoping that going forward, this, this year, we'll be able to complete all the events and register in the top 10 UK, and thus hopefully top 20 teams overall at the competition. As well as UK, we're also going to Germany two weeks after, which also embodies a whole host of challenges. It's quite useful considering we've already gone to Australia, Germany seems a little bit... <laughs> A little bit simpler, um, but it still means driving 15 hours. <laughs> so at least before we could just get a flight and someone else just packed the car and shipped it for us. But it's really, really exciting um, event to be involved in. And as I say, it's why I did engineering. It's the only reason I really did engineering in the end. And I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad I've been involved for so long. Really sad to be leaving university, but I've already told next year's team that 
I'm going to be checking up on them and making sure that they don't undo all of our good work. So, <laughs> thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, our panellists, thank you very much to Rachel, Helen, Aurelia and Hannah. Um, and just before you all go, um, we wanted to do a, a special presentation um, and I'm very pleased to be able to uh, do the award for the F1 in Schools trophy. I believe this is a slightly contentious issue within the uh, arena, but I'm very pleased to say that the world champions in F1 in schools uh, is Rachel Matthews and the team at Colossus F1 from the Robert Mays School in Hampshire, the world champions of F1 in schools, and you get yourself a trophy, so please come up on stage uh, to collect it. Lovely stuff. Thank you to all of our panellists. I'll let you go down and uh, take a seat. Okay, um, time to move on now. And I'm very pleased to say we have three incredible women for you here who are an inspiration not only, I'm sure, to our panellists who have just been up there, but to many men and women across the world because what they do in engineering uh, is quite remarkable. Um, and it's lovely that here at the Institution of uh, Mechanical Engineers we can get them to join the stage and celebrate National Women in Engineering Day. So if I can invite them all up, uh, Lena Gage, race engineer for Audi Sports, Le Mans winner, and uh, also the Formula Student Ambassador. Uh, Bernadette Collins, who's the performance and strategy engineer, having gone from McLaren across to Sahara Force India. Uh, and also to Gemma Hatton, who's a data engineer at Paris Racing at the British Touring Car Championships and also technical writer for Race Car Engineering Magazine. So welcome to the stage, please. So this is my chance to ask the questions that I've always wanted to know, but please do have a think about the questions that you'd like to know, because um, after I've asked mine, <laughs> we'll open it up to the floor and also to uh, Twitter as well and the webinar uh, to find out what questions you'd like asked. Um, so we shall start by, uh, I think we'll start at the end and work this way. Um, so if we can ask you first of all, uh, what attracted you to engineering um, or what made you want to become an engineer in the first place? Are we starting with me? Yes. Okay. Um, so I was about nine years old when I first got interested in engineering. Um, and it was basically because um, my parents kind of encouraged me and my sisters that whenever we broke our toys, we needed to repair them ourselves rather than having new ones bought. So we took things apart, put them back together, um, got interested in how things worked. And um, having met some friends of the family whose son was studying engineering, we realized you could actually make a career out of doing that. Um, which was quite convenient, really, for the toy situation because um, we did learn a lot of stuff that way, um, certainly with the bikes that we had um, and just, yeah, Lego and things like that. That's basically how I got interested in engineering. Gemma? Um, I always liked maths and physics and have been obsessed with cars, but it was probably my brother, my younger brother, who got me into it. Um, I was ironing and he wouldn't turn Formula One off. So I watched it and I was like, this is pretty cool. How do those dudes get uh, a career? So uh, yeah, then maths and physics at A-level, um, engineering. And yeah, I started writing for race car engineering. That got me some great contacts and great knowledge. And um, worked as a student and now in a race team. 
Yeah, where are you now? Uh, Paros Racing at uh, the British Touring Car Championship, and I'm still finishing my degree, uh, doing my thesis at Lotus F1 at the moment, so lots of stuff happening. So if we transfer from Lotus F1 across to Sahara Force India, it's not too far to go. Bernadette, what first got you into engineering? Um, I think I'm probably slightly different to the other two in that I didn't know I wanted to do engineering until I needed to make a decision about where I went to university. Um, I was always interested in mathematics and physics and technology, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I think in hindsight, probably, I was always taking things apart as a kid and trying to figure out how they worked and what was going on. So maybe it was obvious to everyone else, but it wasn't to me. Um, I sort of got to a point where I sort of, at one point, went through the university, like, sort of courses and ruled out everything I couldn't do because I had the wrong subjects. Um, and then decided I should do engineering because it was quite open and broad and things. And I've never regretted it, but I think the one thing is you don't need to know that you're going to be an engineer to, to do well at it, hopefully. Um, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very clear until I started the course. And as things have progressed, it's been very obvious that, that this is what I should do. But it wasn't clear until I got to my A-level stage. So tell us about the role that you currently do, having moved across from McLaren to Force India. <coughs> Um, so my current role is a strategist, which I've been doing for about a month now, so I'm still, still learning. Um, but the way a number of teams work out is they have either a travelling strategist or a strategist at the factory. So my role for the F1 team currently is to look at one car, um, hopefully progressing to two at some point in the future, but look at one car. And I decide things like, in advance of the race, based on the running that we've done over the weekend, how many stops we think it's going to be, when we think that stop would be, what tyres are preferred tyre, um, all of the things that can at our team and all of the other things that I think will go together to give us the best finishing position at the race. That can start from qualifying. Do I think we should run more tyres? Do I think we should see of them? What's the best way to get the best finishing position at the end of the weekend? Going into the race then, from lap one, you're continuously evaluating the plan you've come up with. Is it still the right thing? Do we need more pit stops? Do we need less? Is tyre degradation more? Is tyre life less? Evaluate everything. If there's a safety car, what do we do? So I sort of look at one car on that basis currently and decide what's the best, get the best outcome out of the team. Um, so it's continuous evaluation of what's going on around us, what others are doing, are the situations changing this weekend, just gone by, it was all weather, is it going to rain, is it not going to rain, what's going to happen? Um, and most weekends have got something like that. So sort of reacting to the situation that you're given, but with a plan beforehand. It's good to think we won't have that coming for the next Formula One race yeah, at Silverstone. It'll definitely be dry. Yeah, I mean, it's always beautiful weather there. Um, what about, Gemma, for a data engineer? How, how does your role play out? So um, my main role is to analyse all the data that's on the car and check that everything's working and sort of check the performance of the car. And then, because I'm in a, such a small developing team, which advice is the place to be, because everyone has triple the responsibility, um, I do a bit of performance engineering as well. So I compare, do driver compares uh, on the lap times. And it's all about trying to help the driver look at squiggly lines and see that he can lose time, he's gaining time here or losing time against his other driver um, and checking the performance of the car. So, yeah. Okay. Um, Lena, first of all, you've just got back from Le Mans. Have, have you recovered yet? No. No, okay. It was a tough one to recover from, having yep. won three in a row and then to not win. Yep. Um, I can imagine it was fairly painful, but tell us more about your role of a, a weekend. 
So um, I'm a race engineer for Audi Sport Team Yoast, which means um, I'm in charge of a group of engineers. Um, I look after five of them. Um, who encompass um, looking after the engine, the hybrid system, performance um, and data. Um, I also have between 8 to 10 mechanics that work um, on the car directly with me and I have three drivers. Um, at Le Mans um, in particular, the 24-hour race, um, the mileage that we cover is basically what um, a Formula 1 car will cover within a, a season. Um, the job that I have is um, to make sure that we've got the best performance of the car so that the drivers themselves can get the best out of it from um, the lap times but also from the tyres, from um, a strategy point of view, how we use the fuel um, and also I guess um, looking after and making sure that you've got the best performing car for 24 hours which is easier said than done. You always have problems during a race or challenges as Ross Braun puts it. Um, and things that you need to manage. So I do have to have an overview of how the systems work, but I do get lots of information or detailed information from the engineers and the mechanics around me. Um, within your career so far, a question for all three of you, but we'll start again with Lena. What do you think the biggest challenges that you've faced? Um, I've been a race engineer since the middle of 2010, and I'd say that the biggest challenge I ever had was the first time I went to Le Mans as a race engineer. So I'd done the race a couple of times before as an assistant. Um, and in 2011, we had three race cars. Uh, the race starts at three o'clock in the afternoon. By one o'clock in the morning, we were down to one car, and that was mine. Um, we weren't by any means the favorites to win. Um, but we had four Peugeots that we had to contend with and I didn't really have as much experience as I probably should have. Um, as it turned out, um, I had the support and the backing of a team, a great team behind me, um, who helped me out a lot um, without kind of imposing on what I was doing. And we won that year um, by the smallest of margins actually. Um, over 24 hours we only won, won by just over 13 and a half seconds. So from going from um, someone who was quite inexperienced as a lead engineer to someone who had to take an entire team to winning, I'd say that was quite a big challenge. What, what do you think that taught you, that whole experience? Um, I have to say that the two races I'd done before that were an absolute disaster. We ran out of fuel twice in both of those, made it to the pit lane and managed to carry on, but that's a real no-no as a race engineer, you never do that. Um, it was quite character building. Um, I guess it was a sign of how much confidence the team had in me because they let me just get on with the job as I wanted to without imposing um, what other people wanted. And we, we do have a very big team, I'm sure Alan's told you. Uh, we can rock up at Le Mans with um, in excess of 250 people. Um, not just engineers, but sort of the whole, the whole sort of show. And I was kind of allowed to get on with it on my own which helped me a lot in the end because um, it gave me the confidence to know that I could actually do the job. Um, they weren't judging me at all because I was a girl, um, that I couldn't do it or anything like that. They just let me do it. And I guess that's kind of what it taught me. Um, Gemma, what about you? Uh, biggest challenges you've overcome? Um, probably the last few race weekends. Well, my first race weekend with um, Paras Racing. Race one, power steering fails. And um, because I just was the only one that opened up the software, um, I was chucked with it. So there I was in the pit lane, connected to the car, looking at stuff that I've never seen before and trying to figure out what on earth was going on. And, and um, we had so many different problems and it was just a nightmare and five sets of data, none of them did the same thing. They were all doing crazy stuff. 
Um, but um, yeah, that was that was difficult. But you have to sort of go back to basics and obviously don't panic because then you're no use to anybody. Um, and also speak to other engineers and other teams and how they sort of go about it. And then you can design it for your car. And I'm happy to say last race weekend, not a single blip of power steering. So that's, that's my achievement. So, yeah, that was probably the biggest challenge at the moment. How open do you find the British Touring Car Championships paddock? Are people willing to share information? Well, we're kind of last in the championship, so that helps. <laughs> people, people want to uh, want to help you. And also the whole point of my team is that it's injured ex-paratroopers. These guys have got one arm and they've got a walking stick and they're still doing pit stops just like any other guy. These are amazing, you know, living legends in my opinion. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think also the charity aspect of that, that helps a lot. Um, but, yeah, if it wasn't for a few of the other teams, we, um, we would have struggled a bit, but, yeah. And Bernadette, what about your challenges? Um, I think that's a difficult one because I sort of get through every weekend thinking that's the biggest challenge I've ever had to face <laughs> and then only relive, forget about it in the week in between and then only relive at times like this. But there have been a few that spring to mind. So one was a Formula student where um, we had a very small team, there were seven of us, and I designed the brake system which failed during the brake test. We didn't even meet the three scrutineering and you've got a lot of people and a, a lot of people standing around going we need to fix this and there's clearly no solution um, but then equally in F1 it's you know running out of fuel I've done that <laughs> Tech. it's not cool it's, it's not cool <laughs> um, so there's lots every weekend I think as an engineer and that's one of the things that I think we probably all love about our jobs is you face a challenge and it's difficult and you find a way around it and that's what an engineer does find a way around the problem and um, the way around the problem for fuel is put more in but you know, there's lots of problems that you face that, that you try and get around. But every weekend you sort of come out with thinking, that was difficult, but I've learned something from that and hopefully that doesn't happen again. And I think as I progress, I can't imagine that next weekend I won't have something that I find equally as difficult. But you sort of go along like that and you've, you put it behind you, you learn from it, you move on to the next challenge. Do you all find that when it comes to problems and challenges that you, in engineering you have to put them to one side you can't sit on them and let them brood yeah yeah very much so i think um unfortunately or fortunately um motorsport's one of those careers where you need to get an answer almost immediately and if you don't then it eventually comes back to bite you so you do have to solve things quickly mm. um there's a lot of young people i'm sure watching a few in the audience as well what would be that key piece of information or advice um, you would give them? Let's uh, start with Gemma. Um, so the main thing I would say is sort of get yourself out there, get to racetracks, speak to the team, speak to the engineers, and it is intimidating, but um, if you can do that, you can start putting, putting the pieces of the puzzle of motorsport together, because there are so many championships and teams and drivers, um, and you have to sort of play the game a bit you know, go on LinkedIn, know people's positions, know their names, know their, what they look like so that you don't miss them in the pit lane if they walk past you, but you can actually go up to people and speak to them and, you know, just be, be proactive and also have, uh, have confidence. If you look like you belong there, then people will think you belong there. I, um, <laughs> I managed to get myself into a Formula One test a few weeks, a few weeks ago, a few years ago uh, at Silverstone because I was waving my Formula student pass working with race car engineering, waving my Formula student pass just so confidently while I was chatting away to the security guard and uh, within 
10 minutes I was in the HRT garage uh, interviewing the race engineers. So yeah, <laughs> be confident. Lena? Um, I absolutely echo what Gemma's just said. Um, you do have to go out there. You have to um, be brave enough to go and speak to people. Um, as a, a woman um, in motorsport, you're going to be quite rare. Um, people will remember you. They're going to um, remember a face, remember a name, make an impact, make an impression. Um, don't expect anything to come your way. You do have to go out looking for it. You have to make the opportunities that you want. Um, and I guess the last thing really is um, you have to want to do this job, um, whether it's as a race engineer, strategy engineer, data engineer, design engineer, whatever it might be, go and learn what motorsport involves because there's many different facets, there's many different areas you could go into. Um, being at the racetrack from seven in the morning till two in the morning isn't what everybody wants to do, um, but there's loads of different areas you can get into and you need to know what they are. So go and find them out. I suppose on that subject, a relevant question would be how glamorous is your job? Because I think people think working in motorsport is going to be incredibly glamorous. You get to fly first class around the world, looked after wherever you go, and a nice comfy bed to sleep in at night. No, not at all. Um, I mean, there are some really um, great things about it. I work for one of the biggest um, sports car teams there is. Um, there's a lot more um, works teams coming into sports car racing it's it's on the up at the moment but there's nothing glamorous about waking up at six in the morning and going to bed at two in the morning it's it's not cool at all but um at the end of it we do this job because we love it um within motorsport and certainly within the world endurance championship um i can see a few faces there from the the guys that are involved in the championship as well um i wouldn't change it for the world i would i, would, I gave up a nine-to-five job to do this um and i definitely love doing it i'm sure i won't be saying that after the next race but <laughs> and i wasn't saying that after le mans either but um you have to take the glamour as um one of those things that might be there one day <laughs> surely working for mclaren and force india and f1 that's got to be glamorous um, I think it's not the job that people perceive. perceive people perceive nine to five at the racetrack in the sun, nice time off. You do work hard. There are a lot of benefits. I've been to a lot of places that I wouldn't have been if I didn't work in F1. Um, and you, I really enjoy it. So it's fine. The time at the racetrack's fine. And actually I do it because of the time at the racetrack. So I prefer to be there than in my hotel somewhere most of the time. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's very different. And I think when you speak to people like, a night out or something that what they think you do and what you actually do is generally quite different um, and there are some bits that are mega and, and glamorous or close to glamorous but it's not as glamorous as what people perceive but that's not why you do it that's not why most people work um, so yeah. um, Is there anything you would have done differently in your career so far do you think Bernadette? Not for me um, I spent quite a lot of time at the start of my career. Um, I entered McLaren as design engineer um, and spent a little bit of time figuring out what I wanted to do before I discovered I needed to be at the track. So that took me maybe two years and then from then a little bit of work to get the trackside experience to where I needed to be, whereas perhaps knowing that at the start would have been beneficial. Um, so sort of what um, the two girls beside me have said in that any experience you can get there's such a wide variety of jobs you can do in engineering not just in motorsport in all of engineering there's such a wide variety of jobs for a variety of different people some jobs suit some people and some jobs don't <coughs> figuring out that job or the area that you might want to be interested in early on is quite useful really useful and um, 
it took me, as I say, a few years to figure out I don't want to be at the track. And now I like really want to be at the track. Um, and that was sort of time where it was really useful. I learned a lot about the car. I learned a lot about the design of the car. And I'm sure that experience hasn't done me any harm, but probably if I'd have got to that point a little bit sooner, it would have been useful. Uh, Lena, and you can't choose the result of Le Mans this year. What would you have changed? Um, I went from university um, into Jaguar cars, actually. So I went into the road car industry first. Um, and I guess the only thing I probably would change is that I got more motor racing experience when I was a bit younger. I knew I wanted to be in motorsport, but I just never quite got round to, to going and working for teams um, as early as I should, should have, really. I think uh, probably the first team I worked for was when I was about 26, 27, so my career started quite late, actually. Um, and I think that's something I would change. Um, I'd definitely try earlier to go and see what it involved. Um, yeah, that's probably the only thing. Gemma, do you think you got in at just the right time, then? Oh, see, I was going to say earlier, but... Um, <laughs> my, my first uh, race team, probably 19, 20... Um, but I sort of knew from the age of 16 that, that race engineering is, is the ultimate goal. Um, but another thing I would change or, or advise is always take sun cream, a raincoat and thermals to a track. It doesn't matter where it is because the amount of times that I've either frozen to death or been burnt at uh, a racetrack. So yeah, and after sun, that's probably the main thing. You, uh, <laughs> few Silverstone trips with uh, race car engineering has uh, frazzled me a bit with before, so yeah. I think I would second that as well. If you didn't want a career in engineering, you wanted to go into broadcasting, I definitely agree. In fact, if you're going to a racetrack in general, even as yeah. a spectator, that's the way yeah. to go. Um, if you hadn't have gone into the motorsport sector, where do you think you would have ended up, Lena? I want a chocolate shop. <laughs> I worked in one as, um, when I was um, still at school and um, it was really cool. I'd love a chocolate shop. <laughs> Wasn't what I was expecting, but it's a very good answer. Um, Gemma? It still has wheels, um, but I was sort of thinking military vehicles. I find them um, anything, because motorsport, it's all about the extreme. And it's, I suppose road car is as well. Um, so anything with extreme performance required and with military vehicles, I mean, that's pretty pretty intense stuff so probably the military somewhere. Do you think your current role has led to that or you knew that before you started working with them? Um, I think it's always been an interest um, and yeah when you listen to the stories these injured paratroopers have it's amazing and some of them are engineers in you know in the military and they've had to I mean I'll moan about a couple of graphs on a pit lane and they're in battle where trying to fix a tank so I kind of get a bit quiet when they start talking about that stuff. <laughs> Puts it into perspective, I suppose. Yeah. Um, Bernadette? I think I possibly would have ended up in aerospace. The aerospace industry is quite interested and there's, there's a lot of things going on there. I think where I am now in motorsport, or in F1 in particular, um, that would have been much too slow for me. Um, you sort of, in aerospace, you design something because of, you know, the the risks involved, it's a very long cycle from design to production to on an airplane to even if you know what it's going to feel or not, like that comes years and years and years after you first started designing it. And F1, you design something and it's on the car next week. Or, you know, you, you change something in a torque map or engine braking or whatever it is, any sort of performance aspect of the car and next week, you know how that affects it. Um, 
the, on the way on the train here tonight, I was thinking about something for the car for tomorrow and tomorrow potentially, you know, if that affects it or changes it. So I, I don't think I could go the other way now. I don't think I could go to something like that now and not have that instantaneous result. I think that's what drives everyone in motorsport is that result. So probably would have been aerospace, but knowing where I've been now, I don't think I could go the other way. Um. What about your proudest or best moments in your career so far? Uh, let's start with you, Bernadette. Um, I'm not really sure. I think, again, a bit like the, the most difficult weekend, I think you have moments every weekend where you think you're quite happy with how you've done. Um, and part of my getting trackside experience for F1, I worked as, in GT, as you know, Jenny. Um, so I, I ran a car in GT, and the results weren't you know, amazing, but... Once you get a good result or a good qualifying out of a weekend, you're responsible for that car and you've made a difference to that car in any way. And that's a great feeling of achievement. And with a few weekends like that at GT, we sort of come away and you think, with a few on twos and stuff over double race weekends and you see how happy your drivers and stuff are and you see the competition you've had to go against and winning, that's that's why we all do it. So you come away from weekends like that. But, but every weekend where you make a difference to the car, you can walk away and know that you've, you've contributed in a positive way. Gemma, what about yourself? Um, I'm hoping that proud moment's going to come for my team <laughs> too. Um, but for me, it's whenever I go to the grid and I've got my headset on and my laptop and I'm strolling up to the car, my car that I'm data engineering, I can't get over that. Um, it's, you, you, know, you spend years, obviously you go through university and it's a lot of hard work, any career in engineering is. Um, so to have that thing, that motivation, and to finally think, feel like I'm actually there, um, that, that's very proud. Lena? Um, I think um, for me it was um, after the win in 2011. Um, I'd gone to Silverstone for the Formula Student event, and uh, it was the first time I'd met Ross Braun. Um, and he'd watched the race because he was asking me questions about it, and I was floored because they were supposed to be in Canada Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Concentrating on the F1. We weren't. Yeah, because of the time difference, he watched the race and uh, then he told me that he obviously competed in it himself. And I think um, that made me realise that actually uh, there are people out there that notice what we're doing in sports cars. Um, and it, he, he knew me by name and I was kind, of, uh, was kind of a little embarrassed actually about it, but it made me realise that what we'd done was quite a big achievement. That's very cool. Very cool indeed. Uh, now, as some of you may or may not know, Formula E is coming to London this weekend. Uh, I will be there. I will be hosting it on ITV and I'm very proud to take part in it. Um, if you haven't heard about it, I'll question why later, but uh, let's have a look at what it's all about. Some of us discussed about the opportunity to create a new competition 
uh, that would make motorsport relevant in clean mobility? I think Formula E is very exciting. I mean, it's paving the way to the future and everybody has to do their, their bit to help the planet. We know that we cannot live much longer like this in this planet if we continue consuming it the way we do. One of the things that really attracted us was the green aspect. And my aim today is to discuss Formula E in all electric racing series and how it can be a platform for promoting sustainability, innovation and market penetration of electric vehicles. We know how important is uh, this uh, FIA championship for the future. It's always very good to be, to be there at the beginning. We all know that it's a, it's a complete new discipline, a new series, a new approach. I am so excited, I can't even tell you. I'm, I know it's going to be remembered for generations to come and I just wanted to say I was in the first one. This is different. And you get that feeling when you go around the garages and instead of fuel you have a cable and you charge a car with a battery. We are green, we are ecological, and it's a strong message uh, that we bring all around the world. For me it could be paving the way in a much more direct way and uh, that's what we're hoping. We don't want to get rid of anyone, but we definitely want to be here for the long run, long term. So Formula E definitely is the future of motorsport. We think electric cars still have a lot of room for development, for improvement, particularly the batteries or any other energy storage device. And we think Formula E can play a role on that development. Electric mobility will be the future of city mobility, of human mobility, especially in the core of the cities. And I think it will be very good for all the future generations. We're really at the beginning of something. And that's really exciting. It's a great adventure. And I think everybody shares that feeling. The drivers share the feeling, the team principals, the mechanics, the engineers, being involved in something completely pioneering. This is not another racing series. This is a series on its own. So, ladies and gentlemen, former E Championship, and uh, with our three esteemed engineers on the panel, I'd like to know, uh, maybe we'll start with Lena, how uh, you feel about the championship, um, especially the championship model, specifically it's a one-day championship um, with lots of new technology and street circuits in the centre of a city. Um, well, two of our drivers are involved in it, with uh, Loic Duval and Lucas de Grassi. Um, so I know a bit from Lucas, actually, he's been involved right from the beginning. Um, <coughs> We, we run a, a diesel car, um, we're one of the only teams that, that do that, um, and alternative fuels or alternative energy sources for, for motorsport is a really hot topic at the moment, um, mainly because I guess the, the current situation on the planet is we are going to run out of our fossil fuels at some stage and we do need to think about those alternatives. From a manufacturing point of view, um, certainly the manufacturers have to do a lot more and I think um, unfortunately motorsport did it the wrong way around we followed what the automotive sector were doing in finding um, alternative fuels at least this puts it on the map um, the format is really good because it lasts one day it's got a captive audience being inside a, a city so people are exposed to it and anyone who has any interest in motorsport sees what's going on but they can bring in people who don't have an interest in motorsport and they see um, racing cars driving a track, um, and it's, racing's about racing, it, it's about finishing first, uh, about strategy, all those kind of things. I think it really puts it on the map um, and shows that there is a significance to motorsport, albeit maybe the wrong way around, or it was introduced the wrong way around. Yeah. Uh, Gemma? I think, it's, um, I think it's fantastic. I think it helps encourage you know, the younger generation because you know, soon kids are going to be driving around in electric cars so it makes sense for them to see electric cars on the racetrack now for us we might think oh you know it's a bit quiet and whatever but 
I think it's a great way of getting the younger people interested and in, you know they'll get interested in Formula E and then they'll get to know other motorsports and it just sort of sort of cycles and also from as the regulations start changing and um, from an engineering point of view I think it's going to start to become really interesting in the next few years. Benedict. So I, I think it's an exciting new challenge. I think if Formula E achieves its target of pushing batteries and energy stores, then that's really good. I think in that sense, with, with some of the current regulations, there's a little bit to go, but it has the potential to develop there. Um, the city street circuit format is brilliant. Like A lot of the really good F1 races we go to are, are city street circuits. Um, they bring their own challenges from an engineering point of view, not specific to Formula E, for every, for every car. Um, and anyone who's been to like an F1 race or works in F1 having less days from a driving point of view is probably good. It's a lot more enjoyable. Um, I think it, I think it needs to develop. I, th I think in a few years it, it will be there and it will be really good. Once they get to a point that the batteries are good enough that they're not changing car and it's taken a lot more seriously and it will take a few years to develop to that. But everyone understands that that technology is the way forward and if that championship can drive that technology for manufacturers, drive improvements in the way F1 has in the past, that's a good thing for engineering. Um, and Lena, I can ask you this, Degrassi or Prost for the championship? Degrassi, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> obviously. Do either of the other two think, any opinion on who's going to win? No, really. That's engineers for you. They won't give you an opinion until they've got some facts in front of them. Um, okay, uh, what now? We've heard um, recently, I suppose, Bernie Eccleston suggesting having an all-female championship. Um, what are your thoughts on female-only driver championships or all-female teams? Yeah. Um, my opinion may not be shared by that many others. I think it's a really bad idea. I think um, it might be shared by quite a few others. I'm um, <laughs> all for equality, all for girls being given the same opportunities as guys, but an all-female championship is inequality in the other direction. There's no reason why we can't perform on the same front. There's no reason why a girl can't be as good as a guy. As an engineer, as a driver, whatever, there's no physical disadvantage to driving a car these days. There's no reason why it can't be. The reason that we don't have more female drivers currently is historic. It's because enough girls aren't being put into go-karts when they're four years old by their father because it's not the done thing. It's not because girls aren't good enough. And it will take, like it's reality, it will take a few years for that to change. There's no need to introduce an all-female championship. It doesn't gain us anything except says that we think we're not good enough to compete with guys and that's wrong. I don't feel like I'm not good enough to compete with a guy. I'm not a good enough driver to compete with a F1 driver, but that's just <laughs> reality. Um, but, you know, it will take a few years for, you know, fathers or mothers to believe that they can pop their four-year-old girl in a cart and it's not frowned upon. It's not because girls aren't good enough drivers. So I think it's a terrible idea. Gemma, you were agreeing, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think, obviously, it's difficult. I'm not a driver, so... Um, but I think it's just such an obvious segregation and I think that yeah it goes completely the opposite of what we are all here trying trying to do um, so yeah I think the reason well again it, it's sort of proportionalities or whatever you want to call it um, it girls aren't in there aren't any Formula One drivers apart from Super Zoo Wolf or whatever not because they're not good enough but you know because the well, they're not quick enough, but so are hundreds of other guys. 
um, who aren't quick enough either. I think motorsport is at such a level that teams want, they want fast drivers with lots of money. They don't care whether they're female or whatever race or gender or whatever. I literally think it's just because um, you've got to be quick enough. And when the girl finally does come along that is quick enough, I can't wait. <laughs> Lena? Yeah, I think it's a bad idea as well. Um, just agreed completely with, um, with Bernadette and Gemma. I think at the end of the day, um, we're more than capable of competing with guys. And there's actually nothing more fun than beating guys at the rules that they wrote. So I'm all for uh, competing against them. Um, Lena, if you could change one thing about the motorsport industry, what would it be? Um, I frequently get asked the question, is it hard being a female in motorsport? Now, I don't know where that came from, whether it was the motorsport side or just the perception that people have. I think I would um, change that perception and say that it's not hard being a female in motorsport. It's probably only as hard as you make it. Um, if you go in believing it's going to be impossible, it probably will be. So I think I would want that altered. But it takes um, a couple of generations for that kind of thing to happen. Mm. Gemma? I think if I could change anything, it would be um, just getting the other championships and recognition. Um, you know, have people attending, have hundreds of thousands of people attending Blancpain events where there's 65 McLarens and Mercedes all running around the track. I mean, there's such amazing motorsport events going on all the time. And uh, I know it's getting better, but uh, I still, th you know, I say BTCC, and I know it's a national championship, but you say, you know, WEC or, or whatever. And, people just look at you like you're talking gibberish so I think it's still it's still obviously F1 is the pinnacle I think WEC's coming alongside but I think we need to somehow get those uh, having more exposure those sort of lower championships because that's where it all begins and Bernadette what do you think what would you change my answer is much more selfish I change the time that curfew is on a Friday night for F1. <laughs> <laughs> explain the curfew system for maybe someone who so doesn't know curfew for F1 I think leaves seven hours on a um, Friday night that you can sleep which if you take an hour driving to and from the circuit leaves about five hours of sleeping time on a Friday night so you generally go into Saturday pretty tired but that's sort of an FIA regulation, which means that you know most people do. You do as much work as fills the time available, rather than as much work as needs to be done. And um, so I change that. But I, I agree with what they've just said. They're much better answers. <laughs> <laughs> we all like sleep. You can't deny it. Although the, the regulations were brought in to try and make sure that people did go to so sleep. Let's try and encourage them more sleep. Yeah, and it's, it's another hour next year, so it's all good. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've already changed it. Magical. <laughs> um, Let's look to the future now. Um, some of the guys in the audience will be, you know, working in the motorsport industry in a while, but let's think ahead to maybe 50 years' time. Um, and what do you think uh, motor racing will be like in 50 years' time? Uh, Lena, let's start with you. Um, well, we've talked a little bit about the alternative fuels with the electric racing, and I think that's going to just grow and grow um, where people are going to be taking the responsibility for looking into the alternative fuels much more seriously. Um, and I think the manufacturers will really push that because ultimately, at the end of the day, they're not going to sell cars if um, they haven't got any fuel to put in them. Um, and I hope that in 50 years' time, there's going to be a bit more um, equality in engineering in general, which I think will then be portrayed through motorsport because we do need to have a few more women in it. Um, at the moment, engineering in general tends to focus, because it's so male-oriented, on just 50% of the population, and I think it's important that we start looking at the other 50% so we get the best people involved, um, not just for motorsport, but in engineering in general. 
I think current statistics are something like 6% of engineers in the workforce are currently female. So That's rubbish. Gemma? Well, the way I see it is we're all going to be driving around in something in 50 years' time, whether it's hybrid technology, hovercrafts, whatever, and uh, that technology will... I'm not saying we're going to be racing hovercrafts, but, uh, you know, motorsport is seen, and it's now a sort of dual process. They complement each other, road car technology and race car technology. Um, but, yeah, I think every step that each one makes um, will uh, sort of transfer over to the others. So I don't, people say that, oh, motorsport's going to die out because we can't race petrol cars, which I completely disagree. We're all going to be driving around something, and we all want to go fast because that's the pace of our life, and... The fast things we'll be driving around will be on the track. So, um, Bernadette, I won't ask you if Bernie Eccleston will still be in charge of F1, or even <laughs> if F1 will still be here. But where do you see motorsports in 50 years? Um, well, to answer the F1 question, I think it will be here. It'll just be the historic support race for something else. I think people will be driving those cars and keeping them running. But you know, as as the historics, I think um, Gemma's right. I think we'll be doing racing, but with a different fuel a different type of racing I wonder or I'm tempted to wonder if safety will push it to the fact that we won't actually race and it will be all time trials um, mm -hmm. I think safety is pushing things that direction so I wonder if we'll end up more with like a Isle of Man TT situation where it's more time trial than wheel to wheel racing which would be a pity because you know that's enjoyable and people watch that for a reason but I think the biggest thing you know they're correct Technology will change. It will be a different type of race, but hopefully something will be wheel to wheel or something else. Uh, enclosed cockpits as well, I suppose, on a safety term. As an engineer, where do you see? Um, yeah, it's interesting. Like you know, I've, I've engineered GT cars. They're as fun to engineer. They're, they're equally as fun to to work with. Um, there's still the same competition there. If you get a driver of an open cockpit, they think it's ridiculous to have a closed cockpit because they, they enjoy the, the open cockpit and the feel of that so much more, and that's proper reason to them. Um, I don't have a strong view on it, I think. Um, it needs to be safe, obviously. I'm not sure which way it will go with that, to be honest. Lena, when you're watching uh, Formula One and, and watching some of your drivers take part in it, do you ever think how can they do that because of course you don't have that LMP1 it's all closed um, yeah I mean we had the last time we had um, an open cockpit was in 2015 um, sorry 2015 <laughs> 2010 before we moved to the closed cockpits um, it's a different type of racing with um, single seaters and I think it has um, a place in motorsport one not necessarily that we could use in sports car racing um, Andre Lotterer obviously did the spa round last year um, and he's been brought up on single-seater racing. Um, he still does that in Japan. Um, so for him it was almost like a natural transition to go and do that. But the car as a whole was very different to, to the closed cockpit car we have. We had exactly the same conversation with our drivers. They said, oh, it's gonna, um, we're not going to feel as closely in contact with the racetrack when we go close cockpit but then all of a sudden the aerodynamics came and they were like oh no we really want that it's much better it's much faster <laughs> um, I think all three of you have proven what fantastic uh, orators you are in engineering so final question from me uh, we know there's a vacant role going at Top Gear so would any of you like to be in that role um, or would you like to see an engineer male female in that role 
um, alongside Chris Evans. <laughs> uh, let's start with Gemma. Yeah, I'd love that job. That'd be amazing. Um, I think Top Gear is my life, by the way, so I'm quite passionate about it. Um, I think the, the dynamic of Clarkson, Hammond and May, it's going to be very difficult to replace that. So I feel like the show is going to have to move more towards actually being a car show rather than an entertainment show as much as we all love it. Um, so I think from that aspect, having an engineer there um, who can explain the complexities of you know, race road cars today, um, I think that would be great value and um, I would love to do it. Okay, that's the CV done. Uh, Lena, what about you? Can we prize you away from work? Um, well, I think um, it does need to have an engineer involved. Um, the cars are much more complicated um, now than they have been for a long, long time. Um, and explaining, as Gemma's just said, how a lot of the different aspects of the cars work is, is a good thing to do. Female or female, I think um, if you had a female engineer, it ticks a bunch of boxes. Um, we are prettier than male engineers, that's not really that hard. Um, so, you know, from a TV perspective, that's also a good thing. If I wanted to put myself forward, they um, gave me an award in 2012 for Man of the Year, which we may need to address that. So that's my pitch for Top Gear. <laughs> Um, and Bernadette? I don't want it. <laughs> um, I, I don't know, maybe my impression of Top Gear is wrong, but you know, I, I don't know what the latest road car Ferrari is. I don't know what the latest anything is on road cars. And I didn't have a picture of a road car on my wall as a child. I did have a Top Gear calendar for a little bit of time, but um, it's not... If it's supposed to be a road car review show, then it's not for me. The reason I would want to do it is because of some of the road trips they do and some of the <laughs> adventures they go on. So from the, if it was that sort of show, then yes, but um, not to review road cars, I don't think. Apparently it's not so glamorous. You don't get a cooked meal at the end of the evening or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, right, that brings our questioning uh, from this side to an end, but we would love to hear some questions from you, so I hope you've been thinking of them. Uh, we know that uh, on the webinar, people at home have been thinking of them as well, so um, we have some microphones and we have some audience members, so if you want to put your hand up if you'd like to ask a question, otherwise I will pick and volunteer people. Look, people are leaving already, they're just like, run, I don't want to ask a question. Uh, right, we have a question over here, if you want to leave your hand... Okay, back first, sorry. If you want to say who you are um, and also who your questions to, that would be brilliant. Hello, yeah, there we go. Hi, uh, my name's Tenia and I uh, work on professional engineering magazine for the IMECI. And I was just interested in hearing a bit more about your thoughts on um, how you w would sort of encourage more women into the industry. Obviously, you know, you, you, one of you mentioned there that there's this huge untapped resource. So you're looking at 50% of the population there. However, you also are very much against, it appears, with the Bernie Eccleston um, going, you know, all out female, just looking at female. So how do you get that integration and how, how would you encourage that? What, what could the industry be doing more to do that? Is that to everybody? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Uh, Bernadette, let's start with you. Um, I think that the number of people that I speak to that don't understand what an engineer does is the problem. The problem in this country, I think, is that when you think of an engineer, you think of someone in overalls in a greasy factory doing some really manual job. And that's why most people, when I say to them, I'm an engineer, are surprised as a girl that I'm an engineer. And then when I explain what they, I do, that sort of perception changes. And it's like, oh, so you don't wear a boiler suit to work? It's like, no, well, I don't. I wear this to work. Um, 
So I think this country, um, the IMAGE and institutions like the IMAGE, and I think it is changing, need to do a lot more, and companies actually, to review the face and the image of engineering. That's where it's gone wrong. And again, that won't be a quick process. That won't get a thousand more girls into engineering next year. But if it gets a few hundred every year, then we're addressing the problem. I think things like this, where you get normal people discussing what they do as an engineer helps. And I speak to a lot of girls and, you know, when I went to school, and I think it's possibly the same for the other girls here, my careers teacher, I went to an all-girls school, didn't encourage anyone in that class to be an engineer. And I had to go and find out about it myself. And I think that's very true of a lot of people my age and hopefully the younger generation that's changing. But I think the first thing we need to do is address the view of engineering in this country, male and female. It doesn't, it's not gender-specific, that bit of it. And once people, you know, you don't think of an accountant as being a man's job, but they do sit in an office and they do certain amounts of work or whatever. The problem is the image for me. Gemma? Yeah, I completely agree. The amount of times that I've said, oh, I'm a, you know, I study mechanical engineering, and they go, oh, you're a mechanic, can you fix my car? I'm like, yes, but it's not kind of thing so I think in Germany engineers are sort of ranked as highly as doctors and I mean that would be amazing and I think um, that would be yeah that would uh, be the main thing but also I think because engineering isn't a subject as such you know right from the start obviously in college I think if you could take an engineering subject that sort of about how you take the maths and apply it to the physics situations, I think then suddenly we'll go, okay, so that's what an engineer does. And I think that may be a way of, uh, of getting that integration earlier. Lena, is the perception the same? Because obviously you've worked in different parts of the world and the company Audi is German. Is the perception different in other places? Definitely. Um, I, I now live in Germany and um, Telling people that you're an engineer in Germany, you get a completely different response to telling people in the UK that you're, um, you're an engineer. Um, from, I agree with, with the, the sentiments just um, shared about it being an image problem. It's definitely an image problem in this country, whether you're male or female. Um, but I think going back to sort of the question about trying to get more women in, involved or getting more girls interested in engineering, it starts from a very young age. I was very fortunate that my, my parents... Um, didn't really care what job I did. The moment I said engineer, they were like, yep, perfect, off you go. Sister dad did exactly the same thing. She's involved in motorsport as well, and nothing was impossible for us. No one ever um, in our family stopped us from going and doing that, so that was definitely a big plus point. But I guess that's because they were open-minded enough to know that engineering was a career that anybody could pursue. I had the same as Bernadette to some extent, that within um, school, my physics and French teachers were the ones that encouraged me to do um, engineering. And the moment they heard motorsport, they were really, really excited. My chemistry teacher, on the other hand, was not um, enthusiastic at all. And I went to a girls' school where you would have thought they would have really pushed to have more engineers coming through. Now they can't stop knocking on the door asking me if I'll go back and do um, you know, sort of speeches for the students. But um, education starts um, quite early. It starts with the teachers, with the parents, and with the kids. So, um, Does it even start with the toys? And with the toys, yes. Being told to repair your own toys. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, we had another question. Oh, we've got lots of questions. It's excellent. So if we take lady down here with black jacket, and then we'll come up and work our way up. 
Hiya, my name is um, Hope Cansdale. Um, I went to University of Warwick with um, Hannah and uh, I currently work for Ford Motor Company um, on a graduate scheme. So I guess this question is directed to all three of you, but maybe more towards Lena, because I know you said that you worked for Jaguar. Um, I've always wanted to be involved in motorsport and at 14, 15, um, when I was kind of your guys' age, I went on 10 tenths motorsport forum, which anyone's heard of, and I put a message saying, this is what I want to do at university, can someone give me some experience? And I had so many offers from race teams being like, yeah, I've got tickets, you can come and help us. And I got involved in Brick Car, um, and it was fantastic. It kind of took a back seat whilst I did my A-levels, um, and then throughout university I helped with a Toyota MR2 race team. I'm now at the point where I'm on a graduate scheme that I'm due to finish in December, and I feel like I'm at a crossroads where I need to make a decision as to where I go in January and what department I choose to go in. That's the department that I need my experience before I want to migrate to, to motorsport. What kind of advice, because I don't know who to talk to, when I talk to kind of my mentors at Ford, they're obviously very keen for me to stay at Ford. So I guess, I guess I'm looking for advice as... I want to make sure I make the right decision moving in January. I know that I have to stay in that department for at least a year. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really sure what the best way to go about getting into motorsport as early as I possibly can, but with the right level of experience. Yeah. Um, so I can only really speak from my own personal experience. The, the department I ended up in was noise, vibration and harshness. And um, I was very lucky, actually, in some respects to end up there because that department itself was involved in whole vehicle um, development of the cars from concept right the way through to post-production. Um, and I did a degree in aerospace, so my knowledge of cars was almost nothing by the time I actually started working there. But it gave me a chance to learn basically how cars were put together, how they functioned, and then to move on from there. Um, I think any experience you can get in automotive is useful, maybe not necessarily directly um, applicable to motorsport, because the way we run in motorsport, as Bernadette kind of said, we kind of do things almost immediately. It's not sort of on a, a five-year cycle. Um, I think anything you could do will give you good experience. Vehicle dynamics is the one that sticks out the most because it's got the most correlation to... Um, to motorsport itself, but um, vehicle dynamics itself may not necessarily involve working on the cars. It may actually be simulation-based stuff, so you kind of need to know which end you want to be at. Um, I'm track-based, as Bernadette is, and so is Gemma. Um, I could never have sat in a wind tunnel, for example. I knew that within the first two months of going to university, which was a bit of a problem with an aerospace degree. Um, <laughs> on the other side, I also know that I couldn't have sat in front of a computer and done just simulation-based stuff. So it's a little bit about knowing where your strengths lie or where your interests lie to then go and be involved in that. Yeah, thank you for that. I um, My previous placement, I did eight months in calibration okay. um, and absolutely loved it. I was responsible for kind of the diesel emissions of certain vehicles and it was I really, really enjoyed it. And I don't know whether that's kind of where I'm, I'm edging to go back rather than a yeah. design and release role. Um, is that kind of an area with the use of kind of MATLAB and Simulink that would be useful? I've been kind of reading on especially like strategy and it did say that that was kind of a... A good, a good That's area. Three to solid specialisations going on. <laughs> yeah, we'll say yes. I think I'd agree in that the one place that springs to mind is vehicle dynamics, but that is very much based on if you want to do trackside stuff or simulator stuff or any. There's, you know, all of the companies I'm sure have a big vehicle dynamics 
background and even just the analysis of data is useful in any motorsport mm-hmm. industry for anyone at any level and um, if you sort of ruled out design then I'd avoid doing any of that because the design of a road car will be so different will be quite different to the design of you know different priorities you know you're going to be much more cost orientated than, than any of the rest of us here and um, if there's like a test in road or a test team then although the tests are going to be quite different the same principles apply in testing one car to another getting results trying to figure out the problem all of that stuff but I think vehicle dynamics springs to mind as yeah. being the one that especially if you're interested in something trackside what you've just mentioned the calibration type stuff there are lots of those type of roles in the industry as well there's sort of systems engineers that just look at sensors and, and do those types of roles and um, the strategy role is quite um, different maybe to pure engineering and that a lot of strategists aren't engineers some of them are mathematicians for example my background is engineering so anything modeling you know the, all of the software that you've mentioned is useful I think and um, so you just need to steer sort of have an idea where you might like to end up in a race team um, and sort of steer it as you've correctly suggested through that and avoid the areas that you think either aren't applicable or will be too slow, if you like, for, for what you're trying to do. Can I just add that um, I spent my placement at Nissan uh, Road Cars and I was in the Vehicle Performance Planning Department, which was Mass Planning, Aerodynamics, NVH, um, and actually working there, I had to run wind tunnel tests, which obviously um, you know race cars teams have to do and stuff. So I think, yeah, vehicle dynamics, but also aerodynamics as well. And um, obviously the mass planning, you know, we're all trying to reduce weight in our race cars. So if you can get into that kind of department rather than a design role, I think that's probably, for me, there was a lot of crossover from Nissan into the race team I'm at now. Good stuff. Okay, if we can move the microphone back to... Where are we going? Oh, I'll give you that one. If we can go to the back, that would be great. Um, is there, just out of interest, is there anywhere that's off limits for a female enge- in engineering now? Or do you think everywhere is open and, and accepting? I think pretty much everywhere. Um, I have a friend who, um, in the 70s, was a tyre engineer for Bridgestone in the States. And when she found out what I was doing um, recently, she kind of got back in touch and said, um, for her, when she first did the job, there was no limits to what she could have done. And she was just happy to see that more females were getting more and more involved in motorsport in all different aspects but also within automotive mm. Good. okay uh, let's have a question from the back hello my name is tola um, i'm from the um, network it's a career network for engineers and engin- engineering students and engineers it's called engineering because i'd love to hear from you ladies how you think more and more women more and more younger women can be encouraged to you know, to pursue careers in engineering and specifically motorsports engineering. So, um, do you feel it's your responsibility, I suppose, to, to go and attract people in or how, how can we attract more women in? Um, I guess, um, well, I guess there's two things really. We're sort of doing it already and there was no formula for us to go off and follow or any book that we needed to go and, and read to say, you can go and do this career. Um, because we're doing it and um, as we said about the female only championship we're actually competing against guys on a a level playing field we have the same toys that they do and it's about us doing a better job um, and winning and beating them if if you can show that I think you can already show women young women at least that there is a possibility for them to have a career within motorsport and engineering 
and do it just as well as everybody else does or as the, the norm, which is having lots of guys around, um, as well as they, they do the job. So I think that's, that's one stepping stone. And I think actually thinking about it, now the Top Gear presenter does need to be a female engineer because that really does put it on, on your screen, um, on mainstream TV, that there are women out there, especially as we've just said that within the UK, um, the perception of engineers is quite negative or is actually completely the opposite of what we actually do. Um, but also, if there's a woman doing it, that 6% hopefully becomes closer to sort of 60% at some stage. Okay, any more questions? Okay, we've got lots, so... Okay. Well, hello, Lynn McDonald. I'm an engineer in the energy sector, and my question's elected for each member of the panel. Um, first of all, thank you. Um, what I'm most interested to learn is the particular programmes and initiatives that each of your organisations operate to share technological advancements, data analytical tools with other utilities so we can share in an innovative value chain. So it'll be interesting to understand the programmes that you operate and how we can increase cross-utility best practice sharing. Uh, Bernadette, let's start with you. Um, I work in the wrong industry probably for that. <laughs> um, so F1, I think, between I'd probably answer this more from my McLaren experience between the sort of top teams and the smaller teams and that there is some some sharing of software and you know methods if you like but um it's very formula one specific um and I think it's one of those industries which is sometimes quite close to interaction with other teams you know it is much more competition based um but a lot of the advancements in F1 are being passed on on software or you know, in program development to different formula, to industry, to healthcare sector, to, to lots of different sectors. So maybe not directly between teams, but sort of across the board more, I would say. I can't really answer for my current job because I haven't been there long enough. Gemma? Um, yeah, in terms of sort of technolo technology crossover between industries, then that's definitely a thing. But yeah, in terms of teams, obviously I'm in a championship that's a little bit smaller than Formula One. Um, so there's some sharing, but um, yeah, it's, it is difficult because at the end of the day, you're all trying to beat each other. Um, so, and you do get very competitive. So if you think that, you know, giving them some software or helping them out, if you're be trying to beat them, it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a difficult industry to do that. Lena? Um, so Audi Sport is part of Audi AG. Um, and from that perspective, a company that's producing over a million cars a year, they do have um, a certain level of crossover and it, it's quite applicable to the racing that we do in the World Endurance Championship. Although the car looks like it's a Formula One car on steroids, underneath the skin there are some um, systems and some components that are a direct crossover into um, the mainstream automotive um, industry that Audi's involved in. Um, as Bernadette said, systems-wise and um, some of the development of the um, systems that we have in the car have come from road cars or have crossed over back into that technology. Audi, as I said before, we, we run a diesel car and part of the reason for that was to actually advertise um, that 50% of the sales that Audi have are diesel cars themselves, but they can race as well. Um, 
diesel engines can't go into Formula One, for example, but within the sports car industry or within the sports car championships, they certainly have a place. So that's the crossover that Audi uh, are more interested in, which is why at the moment they're involved in sports cars, not F1. Things like road safety, um, which the FIA drives and has the Institute for um, hybrid technology, hybrid turbo, brake-by-wire systems, are those all things that are being developed at the moment in engineering that will roll on to the road vehicles and other engineering? Yeah, definitely. Like, I think um, Formula One's sort of the background of developing things like carbon fibre, which is now an everyday material, which at the time was not. Um, and there are other things which have been developed by teams in Formula One, you know, brake by wire, the batteries, Formula E for the batteries, all of that. Well, one day, at the moment, it's a multi-million pound industry, but one day it will become a normal piece of a road car. Um, and that will continue to filter in that direction and I think you need frontline motorsport and frontline engineering to do that and that's one of the reasons I enjoy my job is it's top end engineering if you like and and that should filter down and continue to do so things like the safety aspect all of that as well that will continue to work I guess one thing which particularly in Formula 1 which I don't think people are are that aware of is there's a lot of um, engineers change teams quite a lot and through that you get a transfer of knowledge quite regularly um, so a lot of teams do you know there is knowledge transfer from one team to another though perhaps not directly which means that all of the teams sort of progress together rather than well with the exception of Mercedes excelling in front of everyone else but you know it's not maybe well constructed but there is knowledge transfer there and I think it will continue to filter down to, to the car that you and I drive some of that knowledge transfer being legal some of it not so much Uh, right another question from the gentleman please Uh, my name is John Harrison as those who can see me I am several generations away from the majority here Um, my life's been spent in marine engineering Um, my question main question would be about alternative energies but um, Lena was talking about the German perception of engineers and if you like, the start of my career in late 50s, 1960-ish, uh, in this country, there was, if you like, an education system set up to try and equal that in some way. Get away from the then and still current university bachelor of something, master of something degree. It failed. I've now got a bachelor of engineering <laughs> instead of a diploma in technology, which was combining real work with formal education but um, yes so this country hasn't really improved that position Um, I would ask you all I mean we had the demonstration on the this coming weekend e-cars and things Um, not before that is there a no-go area in your world pieces of kits are small and light in my world I was talking to one or two other people downstairs. Pistons over a metre diameter. That's a different world. Most people can't even believe it. Physically handling things. Okay, you don't pick up a piston that size, but you've got to work with it on cranes and things. The physical performance of ladies um, doesn't really fit too well into that. But the energy one. Um, Yes, it's interesting, but I've got a big BMI bonnet on, on land and at sea, windy mills, I don't call them wind turbines because they're not, but did you know that, for example, in the UK, 
I've had a figure for decades, 93 to 95% of all goods are transported by sea, big and bigger ships. And the worldwide figure I've only seen recently is something similar, certainly over 90%. You require, I mean, the engines I work with were up to 30, 40,000 horsepower. Now ships are propelled by one 100,000 horsepower engine. That takes a lot of energy. They're playing with LNG and other things, but carbon fuels are going to have to be the main for many, many decades, and I can't see electricity ever getting into any sort of engineering where you need these massive powers. Comment, please. Okay, let's, um, I'll break that up into two, if I may, because um, I worked with Gary Anderson um, in Formula One at the BBC, and he said to me the only reason he got his job was he could actually physically lift a motor out of a car. And that was the way he started, and that's the way he got into engineering. So do you have any physical limitations on what you do now as an engineer? Let's... So I would say that I fully realise that I'll never do some of the jobs. You know, there's a lot of mechanics in a for example. I won't do one of those jobs. Most of the time I can't get on top of a bottle of water. That's not going to happen for me. And... Um, but so there, there are jobs. Most of the sort of engineering, you know, pure engineering, design work, jobs that we're discussing aren't physical roles. I, I completely understand there are industries out there that are very physical. Um, in a lot of those industries, you know, we have, we have mechanics in our car that, that are girls, do various roles within the team, do it equally as good as the other guys. I fully appreciate that if I had to lift something as part of my daily job, then I wouldn't do it. The majority of engineering jobs nowadays don't involve those roles. Or in those industries, there are roles that girls can do equally as well that aren't physical, I think. Gemma? I mean, okay, we're not bodybuilders, but I don't think it restricts... It doesn't restrict me. Um, I, obviously my team's so small that when it comes to pack up the driver, the team principal, everyone's ripping up flooring, taking off bits and I get fully involved, I'll grab a tyre and try and put it in the truck and the guys are obviously they're military and have got muscles that are triple the size of me and you know they take it off me and tell me off but it, just because we can't f maybe physically lift two tyres, one tyre, whatever, doesn't mean we don't want to and um, you know there are enough people in the team and there's usually one macho man so you can do the flooring while he does the tyres so I don't think it restricts but obviously that's in a trackside environment and um, obviously engineering when you're sort of factory based again I don't see that much limitation and yeah there are mechanics, female mechanics doing their job and they do a good job yeah, I'm, I knew, I, I know quite a few female mechanics and chief mechanics who um, do the job just as well, if not better, than the guys do. Um, and some of them are smaller than me, which I know is not actually possible because I'm not that big. But um, at the same time, I think um, it's a hindrance that's there if you want it to be there. Um, as Gemma just said, if, if you want to lift a tyre, you'll lift the tyre. Um, if you want to lift it with a wheel, if you want to try and mess around with gearboxes, you'll go and do that. When I first started out, I worked for um, a guy who ran 14 um, Formula V cars, and there were only two mechanics there. I was one of them, and I had to, to pick up gearboxes and things like that. So you kind of have to do the job as it's given to you at that stage. I don't think there's limitations. They're only really there if um, you kind of want them to be there. Yes, in some instances, there are going to be things that you can't do. Um, 
as the girls just said, as engineers, we don't often get involved in the nuts and bolts of what's going on on the car. And there's a reason for that. Our specialisms lie in the engineering skills that we take to the racetrack. The mechanics themselves um, are much better at operating the spanners than we are. They can do things a lot quicker than I can, so I'm not even going to try and change, for example, a brake system on the car. That and I probably wire it all up wrong anyway. So from that perspective... Um, yeah, there are things that other people can do or guys can do maybe that are perceived to be guys' jobs, but that doesn't have to be that way. Um, and with regards to energy and, and can we ever get away from from the 95% um, that's maybe probably a passe place to be and we'd like to move it forward, can we? Um, I have to say that... Um, with, with the car industry as it is, we do have to look at alternative fuels because everybody's using a car in this day and age. It's also uh, a commodity for us. I mean, um, people often change their cars every couple of years, so we treat them like we would almost with clothes in a way. We want to replace them with something else that's newer, that's faster, whatever. Um, that industry definitely needs to go down the route of looking at alternative fuels. Um, for the example that you gave... There are only certain fuels that can do what those engines require to, to move ships and things like that. So for that, we will need to have a fossil fuel, but that doesn't mean that it um, precludes um, sort of biodiesel and things like that, which could also be used. There's an efficiency problem with some of those alternative fuels, which definitely um, takes them out of the equation for heavy industry, I guess. Um, on the other side, I don't think we've really touched the surface of the different fuels we have around us. I mean, water's a big one. If we could ever get it to produce hydrogen, which could then um, be done safely and could be used effectively, we could have that as a, an energy source. I mean, we've got so much water around us. We decided to melt the polar caps. We've got a bit more water. You know, all of that kind of thing. <laughs> there are alternatives out there. We just have to try and find them and use them. It does take the manufacturers to push it, though. Okay. I think that's a big thing. Um, I think we can uh, interact with the webinar. Uh, Fiona, do you have a question from the greater outside? Yes, I'm quite conscious that we've only got a few minutes left and we've got three questions from the webinar, so I'm going to ask a panellist a question each. Um, so, this one is for Gemma. Um, good afternoon. Uh, Gabriella is in Brazil time. Uh, she's 30 years old. Uh, she works in the world of motor racing for a few years. She's run a kart. Uh, she's worked in the management of uh, race staff um, in Brazil. After many years, she decided to study journalism, and her question is about communication and engineering. How is the communication of engineering with me the media of teams and the decisions of how to show engineering to the fans in the world conceived in the media from your perspective? Well, okay. <laughs> um, I think generally um, the communication is there. You know, obviously working for race car engineering, that's what I do. I talk to teams, I talk to engineers, and I try and regurgitate that and, and get the technology that's out there um, to to the people who are sitting on the plane or, or in at home reading a magazine. I think, um, so it is there, that transfer is there. Um, I just think that those sort of technical publications need sort of more exposure. They should be on the racks next to autosport and that sort of thing. But, and teams are generally um, happy to talk about certain technologies and there's so much innovation happening at the moment in motorsport that you know there's so much to write about we i think um just chipping in 
very quickly because obviously I'm media side of things. Um, on a Sunday of a race, we get to sit down with one of the um, race engineers, who's a senior race engineer, and he talks us through what we're expecting to happen in a race, um, how that could play out strategy-wise, but also with anything that's coming on new engineering-wise that they might be able to inform us about. And obviously a lot of that's secret, but it's our job as broadcasters to get that across to people at home. Now, hopefully on a, on a Friday in practice, we get to do that a little bit, but it's very hard to juggle on a Sunday in a race, talking to people who understand engineering um, and who have studied it for years, and also appealing to the person who doesn't really know anything about motorsport but likes to see crashes. So it's, it's getting that balance, and, um, but we do have a responsibility as well to do that. Sorry, I butted in, Fiona. That's fine, thank you. Okay, next one, um, we've got Angela Cosner, and this one is going to go to Bernadette. Um, Angela is a suspension engineer for SRT. Um, she would like to know if you've ever worked in a division of engineering or motorsport that you're extremely passionate about and that you wanted to physically participate in, um, and how was this experience, and did, did it turn you off in any way? Um, I need to have a little think about that question, but... Um I think all of the areas of engineering that I've worked in have been I've been passionate about. I think the one that was probably the most physical, if you like, um, I worked in gearbox design prior to going trackside, um, and that had a lot of interaction with um, the guys downstairs building the gearbox and working on that. I don't think I've ever worked in any of the sectors, and I've worked in, in quite a few different variations in the F1. I don't think I've ever worked in any of them that either I haven't been passionate about or it's put me off doing that role. I think I've taken lessons from it, decided maybe that I might give something else a go. I've moved about quite a little bit and part of that's been my own main decision more than um, not enjoying what I did previous to that and just trying to get new experience. So um, I don't think I've done anything really that I've sort of said, that's not for me. Thank you. And then the final question is for Lena. Um, this is from Dipperly. Um, to involve girls in motorsport and engineering in early childhood, which is obviously something we've touched on this evening, um, is there a scheme or programme that can be introduced to encourage motorsports and engineering as a career, possibly highlighting some of the ones we've shown earlier this evening? Um, I think the F1 in schools one is, um, is a really good advert for engineering in general, especially... Um, I know Manisha Calkenborn um, through the FIA, FA's Women's Commission and she was the one that sort of pointed it out to me that that particular um, scheme or that particular competition encompasses so many different um, aspects and gets kids thinking about science and engineering. That's definitely one that could be used so easily um, with the exposure that it gets uh, through Formula One which has got a very captive audience because of the, the um, TV coverage that it has as well. In, a, in, in kind of getting kids interested in what science and engineering has to offer and starting at grassroots, which is what we've kind of said um, a bit earlier in the evening, we do need to have more of that education being um, put across to kids at school um, with the teachers around them, with the, with the parents around them as well, to try and encourage that. Okay. Um, I think we are done in that case. Um, just a final thank you to everybody um, for attending. Thank you to everybody on the web and the... Uh, greater atmosphere that we have now um, and thank you ever so much to our panellists who have been absolutely fantastic and given us so much insight and are generally really interesting to hear from so uh, thank you very much to uh, Lena Gage, to Bernadette Collins and to Gemma Hatton, a round of applause if you will.
you to the organisers of today um, and also to iMechie for um, hosting us because it's, it's been a fantastic uh, event. So thank you very much to everybody uh, for coming as well and to celebrate National Women in Engineering Day. So thank you very much to everybody. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.